On this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, we talk with Josh Sands, who's a longtime writer for Golf Magazine. Uh, we chat with him about growing up in Brookline, sneaking on to the country club, uh, and how he went from uh, writing a general column in the San Francisco Chronicle and uh, being the restaurant critic for the San Francisco Magazine to uh, writing for Golf Magazine. Um, and along the way, uh, some of the quirky, far-flung stories he pursued, uh, which uh, included playing in the North Korean Open, uh, going to Cuba, report on golf development there, and lots of fascinating things. Um, and uh, we chat about all of that. And um, in addition, cover a number of current topics, what's going on with uh, the Live PGA Tour saga, uh, the gambling allegations about Phil Mickelson and Billy Walter's latest book, uh, the distance issues and the USGA's model local rule and some of the recent responses from the both the PGA Tour and uh, the PGA generally, and um, just some of the challenges that the game is facing today. And uh, Josh has, as you'll readily see, a great sense of humor and is really a lot of fun to talk to. So uh, up next, Josh Shens of Golf Magazine. Welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy. And I am really thrilled today to welcome to the program Josh Sens, who a uh, longtime writer with um, Golf Magazine, Golf.com, and lots of stuff to chat about. Josh, thank you so much for making time for us today. Appreciate you having me. Uh, so just to give folks a little context and kind of go back to uh, where you're from, um, I understand you got uh, that you grew up in Brookline, Massachusetts. Um, I'm from West Hartford, so two New England guys. Um, and um, uh, how did you first get involved with um, playing golf? I just want to clarify, Larry, I was from the tough part of Brookline in case anybody. <laughs> um, how did I get, I didn't grow up playing golf at all. And um, as you may know, if you know that area, the country club, which sits in the heart of Brookline is sort of a place apart. And in those days, especially it felt like, and this was pre tiger boom. It was before golf became cool. I played baseball. I played football. I played lacrosse. I not only did I not play golf, I really didn't know anybody who played golf except for one guy. And I certainly didn't know any members of the country club or any any of the sort of marquee courses in the area, but there was a municipal course uh, that butts up against the country club. In fact, when the um, U.S. Open was held there in 88, I think it was, if I'm getting my dates right, yeah, uh, 88, right. they used what was then called Butterham Meadows as a parking lot. And uh, there was a kid on our uh, in our high school named Lenny Curtin. He was a year older than I was. And he played on the golf team. He was the only guy on the golf team who could reliably break 80. And uh, Lenny was the son of a cop, kind of a goodwill hunting character, just a tough kid we all looked up to. And every spring he would go out onto Putterham Meadows, the Muni, where Brookline played its home matches, and cut a hole in the fence. He'd go out there with wire cutters, cut a hole in the fence, which uh, <laughs> and, and sneak onto the country club, onto what I believe is the 11th hole. I think they used it as the 10th during the U.S. Open routing, the long par four, but for members it plays as a Right. And, right. It, just for people who remember, just say, yeah, it's called the Himalayas. It's a classic hole, rock outcroppings. It is a par five and it is your good memory. It is the 11th for the regular course. 
Right. And so I wasn't a golfer, but one day we went out to the Mooney with Lenny and he had cut a hole in the fence. And I thought, that's intriguing. And anyway, so my first my first rounds of golf were rounds of trespass, sneaking onto the country club, through a hole in the fence from the Muni. And I remember hitting a shot out there and thinking, wow, this is just a different form of golf. You know, it right. was so beautiful. And so I, you know, I I should I should back up. I had hacked around a bit on the Muni, but I wasn't a golfer. And when I finally saw the country club and all its glories, I thought, wow, this is just a game in a different kind of place. And it, it sort of elevated my expectations and changed my perspective on it. Um, and, and Lenny got to... caught, right? Did he get, he got sneaking through. Didn't he get caught once? Yeah. Or... So, so Lenny, we always wondered what happened to Lenny. He would sneak off and, and uh, you know, play his rounds over there. And we just assumed that he would he'd gotten off scot-free, but he told me years later, this is a roundabout story, but that he eventually got caught by the country club. Um, and instead of calling his parents or calling the cops, they put him to work on the grounds crew and he loved it. He wound up working as an assistant on the grounds crew in 88 for the US Open, went on to work at the country club itself. And today he is the superintendent at George Wright, which is a great old Donald Ross Muni just outside Boston uh, WPA project. And he has been credited for uh, you know reviving that course. He keeps it in great condition despite all sorts of you know municipal constraints. And uh, he and I, after I wrote about years ago, sneaked onto the country club and, and writing about Lenny, he got back in touch with me after 30 years. So it was great to hear wow. from him. How that, cool is yeah. that? that? That's awesome. Um, so hacking around, playing a lot of sports, not really focusing on golf. You go to Brown uh, for college, um, Portuguese and Brazilian studies. Uh, that's an interesting topic. And then you, you worked on the school newspapers. So did you kind of have a sense at that point in your life in college that she journalism is something I might want to do? Um, you can probably guess from the randomness of my major that I didn't have a lot of uh, firm career plans. Um, no, I didn't. I worked on the school newspaper just because I enjoyed writing. I thought it was fun, but it was never in the back of my mind to become a journalist. After college, I went and I worked in Portugal. Um, teaching English, but on the side, I worked uh, for UPI, the old wire service there. Yeah. Because, because I spoke Portuguese, I could help translate for the bureau chief there, but I didn't do any real journalism. Um, it's a long story made slightly shorter is that I fell in love with a Spanish woman who was moving to California, and I moved to California following oh. her. The only thing we do in life is for love and money, right, Larry? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so I, uh, I moved to California and to pretend that I had a plan, I applied to graduate school. And I thought actually at that time I was going to go to uh, school. I was going to get into the Foreign Service. I had this idea I was going to get into the diplomatic corps, maybe work in Latin America. But I really didn't like graduate school. Took a course on a lark in uh, the journalism school at UC Berkeley. Loved it and fell into that, and the rest was history. That was, uh, you know, when I got out in the early '90s, I started working for newspapers and radio, but not in golf. I, I still wasn't what you would call a serious golfer in any way. So uh, that's interesting. I was wondering how you got to the West Coast. So that sort of explains that. So you're you're out of Berkeley, um, doing different things, different news, not golf related. At some point along the line, um, I know you became restaurant critic for the San Francisco Magazine. Um, yeah. well, how did that How did that one happen? Um, I was writing a column for the San Francisco Chronicle, the local newspaper, and I wrote something about a restaurant, I think, that the editor of San Francisco Magazine uh, saw and started to interview me for the job. But they decided, since I had no background in food writing, that they would give other people a try. And I think they tried a bunch of chefs and culinary school graduates until they finally realized that it probably made more sense to hire someone who had a little bit of a journalism experience. That was more important than whether you knew what a chiffonade was or, you know, <laughs> like 
LaRousse is memorized. So I, you know, I had grown up somewhat in a restaurant family. I had a cousin ah. who was a chef and I worked at a place called Chanterelle in New York. Cause this, at Oh, the time. I remember Chanterelle. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of a famous French restaurant. Yeah. And we used to go there, but I, I didn't know, you know, anything about food really other than I would eat anything that was put in front of me. Um, but becoming, <laughs> having to write about restaurants for close to 20 years, I, I learned to fake it. <laughs> that's funny. So you're writing this column for the San Francisco Chronicle, as you mentioned, and mm -hmm. that's kind of how the food thing happened. But you also wrote a golf story that got picked up by Golf Digest, as I, I think I have my facts right. And that's kind of how you got into golf. Maybe what was that? It sounds like a pretty neat story. And kind of how did all that happen? Oh, yeah, I was writing a column. It was sort of a man bites dog column is what, what they used to call a three dot column, just assembling items in the news. And my job was to find oddball stories in the news, man bites dog stories. Right, right, right. And uh, I, I ran into a friend who was a, who knew a club maker and I was starting to get into golf at that time. I was starting to play with some friends and I decided I would go get fit for clubs from this guy in Berkeley. And he told me that one of his clients was a high Tibetan Lama like the third in the command, as he described him to the Dalai Lama, who was a golf addict. And I said, that can't possibly be, you know. And sure enough, the Lama Kunga, who lived in, um, in a nice house in the El Cerrito Hills overlooking the bay, was indeed a golf addict. I rang him up and he agreed to show up and go out and play golf with me at a, a local course. And I picked him up. We drove out to the course. My car broke down on the freeway. It turned into this just comic misadventure, um, starting with my car breaking down, but then also with the Lama himself being um a, a humorous character who you know would use the foot wedge improve his lie cheated openly but had a sense oh of wow so i mean not in a serious <laughs> way he just he just wanted to have fun and so he turned out to be a pretty com a good comic character and uh from there i started getting more and more assignments and that led to an assignment with golf magazine and i started freelancing for them that was back in the early 2000s and it's been 20 years now wow and it sounds like you know, when you started writing for them, it was kind of maybe along the lines of your column, sort of quirky, far-flung stories of uh, the kind of stuff that I think, unfortunately, with the web stuff now, it's it's not as, as um, you know, uh, suitable perhaps for today. But back then, um, it was perfect. So, I mean, you had some memorable stories, right? I mean, you went to the Australian Outback, talked about golf in Cuba, North Korea, Brazil, all over the place, right? Yeah, I mean, to me, that was always the most interesting part about golf. As much as I loved the game, I was never an especially good golfer at a very homemade swing. And I was, anyway, I liked professional golf for a few events a year. But to me, the most interesting part of the game was always the places it took you and the characters you met along the way. So I approached golf writing or golf as just a, a portal into a wider world of reporting. It was an opportunity to travel and it was an opportunity to learn about the world and it was an opportunity to meet interesting people. And so anytime I had an opportunity to pitch a story about a golf course in an unexpected place or a person who I thought was doing interesting things in the game, I would pitch it. And in those days, there was more opportunity than there is today to do that kind of travel because as you know, the media landscape has changed and both what publishers and uh, readers seem to want is different. So what was the North Korea stuff? I mean, that's fascinating to me. How did you end up that? And what was that like? Um, so um, Kim Il-sung, the founder of the revolution on this on his 75th birthday, I guess that would have been the 70s. I'd have to get the exact date. But he built a course in North Korea outside of Pyongyang to honor himself on his 75th birthday. And it became a playland for kind of 
party officials. You would invite Chinese party officials to play. Um, it was just a sort of a, a monument to himself with an opportunity to placate some of the visitors he got. Anyway, there was a quirky British guy who somehow got connected to a Chinese tour operator who somehow got connected to an event that they held there once a year called the North Korean Open. And through this British guy, foreigners could get in and play in this event. Um, so one year, I think it was 2011, I applied to have my visa accepted and to, I applied to get into the tournament. Uh, you didn't have to be a great golfer, obviously. Um, and my application was rejected. I had written down that I was a reporter or a journalist and my application got rejected. And the next year, I said to the same British guy, you know, I'd like to play in this. What should I do? And he said, just lie on your application. Say you're a tour <laughs> operator. The North Koreans love tourism. They want dollars. If you're a tour operator, they'll welcome you. And he told me that I would send my application in and then I'd get a call from the Chinese embassy in the United States and they'd vet me. And, you know, that's how it would be cleared. So I sent my application. I never got a call from anybody. Nobody checked me out. And uh, so I ended up just sort of lying my way into North Korea. Um, it's sort of a long story, but uh, I flew to China to the way for Americans. I don't know if it's still the case, but in, uh, this was a little about 10 years ago, a little more than 10 years ago. Uh, Americans were not allowed to take the train into North Korea, which is the common route from Northeast China. You take a, you take a train, but Americans weren't allowed. So I took a train from Beijing up to Northeast China, then hopped on a little puddle jumper prop plane, an old Soviet prop plane, got to North Korea and played in a tournament that is a collection of real oddballs um, on a really ah, must bizarre, be. Uh, bizarre course in the saddest country I've ever visited. And oh, I finished wow. third, Larry, but a handicapped event. So third I heard you can, third, yeah. it was a third in a field of about 11 and 10 of them were drunk mongolians so <laughs> as much of a comp uh, uh you know an accomplishment but it was that's, that's awesome um is that like your most memorable or what, what would you say over all these ones that you've gone all over the world what one do you think is most memorable for you I mean, I, you know, I think when, you know, when, when people are sitting around a table and checking off the courses they've played, you know, as golfers tend to do, right. I, I tend to have one in my pocket that most people haven't played. I can say I played the Pyongyang, uh, right. golf, you know, not many can top. So in that way, it stands out. I would say the Cuba story was, was pretty memorable as well, only because, well, because it reminds me of the glory days of magazines when you go off and report for a week and, you know, right. do, find the stories. And it was the 50th anniversary of the revolution. I pitched it with that as the hook, but also because at the time, um, Cuba was gaining momentum as this potential next frontier of golf development in the Caribbean. Um, there was a Canadian company that was pushing for a bunch of projects there. And at the time, there was talk of opening and changing laws in, in Cuba, because what has held golf development back in Cuba, among other things, is the lack of land ownership because of the government structure. Right, right. Nobody wanted to develop there because you couldn't sell lots, which is how you build courses and make money off them. So anyway, um, at that time, I went to write about golf. It's, it's past in Cuba, which, as you may know, you know, Cuba had a fairly rich golf past when right. it was a capitalist playground before the right. There was a tour event there, you know, all a lot of the greats would go. Um, I'm rambling here, but basically. No, no, go ahead. That, this is great. That was a memorable story because it was, uh, you know, it was just an interesting place to go to see this island that was trapped in time wrestling with kind of whether it was going to become returned to being, you know, the golf was, was you know, all the courses in, in Cuba were plowed over by Castro in part because golf was just seen as the ultimate expression of everything that was wrong with uh, capitalist exploitation of Cuba. And now there was talk of reviving golf there. 
And so it was it was an interesting story in that, you know, there's a little nine hole course in Havana that was the one concession that Castro made to British uh, diplomats who were living there. He said, OK, I'm going to keep this course open so you guys can play here. And it remains there uh, and it is trapped in time, a little tattered pro shop. I was there shortly after the Masters. I guess that would have been in 2011. And there was a TV on and some sports highlight flashed. And this was maybe in June or July after the Masters and the head pro there didn't know who had won the Masters. So wow. it was these examples of, you know, you're 90 miles off the coast of Florida in a golf shop, but so hermetically sealed from the rest of the world that the golf right. pro there didn't even know who had won the Masters. So um, it was that kind of story um, that involved all their side adventures as well. But Cool. That's cool. So you're, you know, as you said, it's been about 20 years since you've been riding in golf. Um, and of course, as we kind of touched on a little bit, journalism, like so much of life, has been changed by the web so dramatically. So your focus now is sort of, is, I'm, I'm guessing, less on these type of, let's call them Herbert Warren Wynn long type pieces, <laughs> uh, you know, or Frank DeFord long type pieces, or Dan Jenkins long type pieces, more to sort of shorter type hitting stuff, I would guess. Well, that's a nice company to put me in. I wouldn't put myself <laughs> at those guys' level. But yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah, the web has changed everything, as you know. And so now I try to strike a balance. You know, we there's the there's the content beast to feed. The web right. needs new content every day. And so some of that is writing what they call listicles. And some of that is just writing quick hit, turn and burn news stories off of the tour or something else that happens in the game. I've become... Uh, sort of fallen into a job writing about golf course agronomy. Uh, we, wow. we, started a, we started a column called Super Secrets. It was during the pandemic. Um, and I think I wrote something about a dormant course and what it was going to take to reopen the course after, you know, it had been shuttered during lockdown. And this is naive of me, but, you know, even though I'd been playing the game for about 20 years, I had no idea. I figured you just go out and mow the grass and reopen the course. But <laughs> as anybody who knows anything about golf course agronomy knows, it's not that simple that you can't just, you know, flip a switch and get a golf course back in operation. So I wrote something about that and uh, it turned out to be so popular part because people were locked down and didn't have anything right. else. To <laughs> but it also had connections to, you know, turf care. And then it turned out to have a connection to yard care. And we realized that if we wrote columns about golf course superintendents and what they knew about agronomy and how that might apply to a homeowner, we had a huge crossover market. And especially if you wrote about people's yards, we realized that, um, it would get a lot of interest and to the point where we started joking that we should turn the website into a home, uh, you know, a yard care website and we might even get more traffic because Americans are <laughs> so obsessed with their yards that anything you write about them, you know, will get traffic. That's funny. Um, do you, do you go out on tour and, and follow um, or where, where are you just? Where, I don't do a do ton of tournament coverage. I, I'll, I'll do a lot of advanced coverage like advance to the U.S. Open in Los Angeles this year. I went to L.A. and did a story about the municipal golf scene there, did a story about an adaptive golf clinic, did something on LACC and then a muni that butts up against it. I did cover the um, U.S. Women's Open this year at Pebble Beach, but we have a team of, you know, three or four younger guys who are really good they have the they have tournament coverage pretty dialed in and i feel like they don't really need me on the tournament coverage anymore um i shouldn't say that i shouldn't make myself obsolete but we have a really good team so when i'm needed i pitch in but i would say that pro golf is not my main beat fair enough um although i one of the interesting things is i regularly am on your site uh is 
the tour confidential, which I think you guys do every Sunday night. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you're almost, I think almost, Oh, I always see your name in that. So I'm sort of curious how that develops. I mean, so do you have to, um, do you guys like do a, do a sort of live thing or do you just sort of do email? I mean, how do you produce something like that? Oh, that's produced by way of a Google doc. And, you know, we, you know, I should, I don't go to the tournaments all that often, but I do watch all the tournaments and try to keep abreast. So it goes out in the Google doc and we all just respond. I think in an ideal world, it would be, it would take the form of a conversation more with a little more back and forth um, where, you know, say you would answer a question, then I would answer right. and then you'd say, no, Josh, you're talking out of your, you know, <laughs> but per usual, you don't understand. And then we'd have an exchange. But it doesn't always or almost doesn't usually take that shape. But we try to tackle, you know, some of the pressing topics in the day of the day. And these days there's quite a lot of news to cover in golf. And then, you know, I um, even though I try to stay off social media because I find it so objectionable, then I then I log on the next morning onto Twitter and see all the comments of people calling me an idiot, which is always fun too. <laughs> I made the mistake. I made the mistake of mentioning climate change in a in a in a. Uh oh. Yeah, so I immediately branded myself as you know a political radical. Um, you know, it's, God forbid you refer to science and its potential effect on golf, but you know that was I was branded an ignoramus and. Uh, you know, I, I can only imagine what it must be like for someone like you. You know, with social media. I mean, do you look at the comments a lot on, or do you try to resist that? I mean, it would drive personally just for me. It would drive me crazy but um uh because uh-huh. there's so many there's so many um golf twitter is its own species and i mean there's so many people out there on that yeah i i look at it all the time i refrain from commenting i you know i'll post a story or you know recommend a story once in a blue moon but i don't tweet probably as often as i should or it, do you call it tweeting now now that it's I, I don't know i don't know what the i don't know what the verb is for x so i don't I will x have to as much it. as i should i don't x as much as i should um and i think it's really a bad idea to engage in kind of you know anonymous snarky back and forths and insults. I, I'm not interested in that. I mean, I, I, I feel the draw. It's hard for me sometimes to resist replying to what I think is a ridiculous comment, but I tend not to because life's too short. I totally understand. Just one thing, and I, and I do want to talk to you about a couple of topical issues, but just as, as long as we're talking about sort of journalism and the web and stuff, um, it is interesting. I'm sure, you know, you're a keen observer of this, these um, things like no laying up the fried mm-hmm. egg, you know, all these different mm-hmm. companies have come up and people who had more of a foot in somewhat of a more traditional um, environment. I'm thinking of like, uh, oh, like Buckenberg, you know, who went over mm-hmm. to no laying up and, mm-hmm. um, you know, folks like that. I mean, those folks seem to be making um, like the no laying up guys seem to be all over the place and have a lot of contacts. And you guys kind of have a foot in both camps, right? Because you've got the traditional golf magazine, but you're still online too. I'm just curious kind of what you think about sort of where the um, journal golf journalism industry is and heading given the, uh, you know, the emergence of all these sort of uh, let's call them alternative golf media companies. Yeah. You know, actually I wrote a story about that, about, uh, maybe about eight or nine years ago about just the rise of golf Instagram and the growth of alternative golf media. And it was uh, pegged on, on a company called the Sugarloaf Social Club, which is a little group of guys who are just sort of golf fanatics who started posting pictures of courses that they liked around the dawn of Instagram. And then it blew up. 
Um, and they, they gained a really loyal following. And I think at that time, you know, it spoke to an appetite that people had to really engage in ways outside of the formal media structures. So I think it's natural and healthy. And, you know, from our standpoint, we do try to straddle both. It can be tricky to do when you're trying to work uh, within this bigger publishing environment and you don't get to be sort of the alternative voice, as it were, always. Right. So when you try to be, we are, we are trying to be a lot of things to all people to cover the game across its spectrum. And that means everything from gear and instruction to travel to tour news. And so when you try to do everything, it can be, it can be a tricky balance to strike. Um, you know, something like, I think no laying up. I know a few of those guys pretty well, Matron especially. I think, you know, I'm, I'm impressed by them. They're smart. And I think what people mostly responded to is they're smart and they're also really forthright. You know, there right. was this, it was never the sense that they were beholden to anybody, right. um, uh, which is sometimes the, the the knock that golf writing gets and not without some justification. You know, when you would see a travel story in golf for decades, it was fair to wonder, well, is that a story or is that an advertorial? Who's paying for right. that content? Right. And so, you know, when you as a reader get access to somebody's opinion that seems unvarnished um, and sort of bold, then that's that's refreshing and I, I think that that's what you know some of these these outlets are speaking to yeah that, that's for sure. that in a younger audience that you know is fed up with the fuddy-duddiness of a lot of golf and let's face it i mean golf is a a, a, a game that veers into self-parody really easily i mean and we, we've seen it you know caddyshack captured it years ago and it wasn't entirely off the mark no that's for sure and and uh i mean the other one i mean somebody i actually know through our club here is dan rapaport another one who's sort of in that younger generation and and someone right. who kind of did the transition right you know he was you know si then golf digest and then is you know moved over to barstool so um, right. there's definitely a need in in that area for sure um you know there's you you referenced a little couple minutes ago so much going on in the game there sure is. Um, and um, uh, I know you don't focus on the pro game and we'll talk about some non-pro stuff, but I have to sort of start just because it's so much in the news with, you know, the whole live PGA tour saga. Um, and um, it's just, uh, you know, it's kind of a soap opera. I mean, you know, we were sitting here and you watch Jay Monahan for a year, you know, um, uh, talk about the Saudis and then lo and behold, the framework agreement comes out. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, in the truth, stranger than fiction category. I mean, that was just such stunning news when that came out. Now, you know, we've got, you know, the antitrust investigation. Who knows? I mean, you have any thoughts on where this whole live PGA tour saga is going to land? Uh, well, I mean, you, you touched on it, how surprising so much of it has been when that, you know, when that news of the framework agreement came out, we all thought it was an onion, an onion headline. This can't possibly be true. And then there was the news that, you know, Monaghan was taking a break for health reasons. And that my I got to say, I hate to sound too cynical, but I, I thought that was straight out of a, a Pravda, you know, Soviet release like. Mr. Yegenev has taken ill and is recuperating by the Black Sea. Like that's how you get rid of somebody. You know? Right, like someone from a Stalin photo getting erased, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and things are so surprising. I mean, I think what's clear, you mentioned antitrust. That's something I've written quite a bit about and talked to a number of antitrust attorneys. And I was just at an event in Pebble Beach where a law firm that specializes in antitrust cases, people were discussing it. And, you know, this deal, this framework agreement seemed to be mostly just a, a quickly hashed out peace accord to end the litigation, which was costing right. a lot. Um, 
without a lot of thought to what's going right. on. This was like, let's get this rough thing out there. It was clearly half-baked when it came out. Um, and now there's going to be scrutiny from the Department of Justice and, you know, at least the antitrust experts I've talked to have said, you know, hey, this raises a lot of concerns. This is so far from a done deal that, you know, everything just seems up in the air. Yeah, probably. I'm sure Jay's lawyers weren't thrilled when he said, you know, we're taking a competitor off the board. Yeah, there was an attorney who sent me a list of, you know, I was thinking about running it. He asked me not to, but it was a list of sort of like the 15, speaking of listicles, like the 15 stupidest antitrust things tour, Monaghan and other tour officials have said, you know, and already they've had to walk back. Um, you know, there was the promise not to poach each other's uh, talent. Right, right. They right, already right. had to revise. And so I think we're going to see so many of those shifts as as things move forward. I mean, Monahan himself has said, and I think Jimmy Dunn said, "Hey, I'm not an antitrust guy." It's pretty clear they didn't consult too many antitrust people as they were hashing out this this agreement. And so those devil, the devil in the details, are going to start coming out, and we'll see where they go. Where they go, but I, I think it's going to be a longer road than people expect. I suspect they'll get you know, an agreement hashed out by the January first deadline they've set for themselves. But then come the regulators, and and who knows. Right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it almost reads more like, and you, as you said, you know, like a settlement agreement of the litigation. That's really the only thing they agreed to. Everything right. else is kind of more, you know, aspirational. Um, and as you say, with all the antitrust issues, it's it's amazing. Um, and, um, uh, you know, in the meantime, I mean, the litigation end is certainly one big drain on the tour that so uh, they've stopped that um, leak uh, of money. But um these elevated purses with, I guess we're, I, I got to get the newest nomenclature. I guess they're signature events now as opposed to designated <laughs> events, but it's a lot of money. Um, and I don't know. I mean, they've got to be dipping into the reserves. I mean, cause it's, you know, the contracts, I know they were lucrative, but the, see the television contracts are what they are. I mean, it's not like they're getting renegotiated, at least that I know of. So um, it's still got to be a pretty big drain for the tour paying all these huge purses, right. Or having the sponsors, I should say, pony it up. Sure. I mean, and I, you know, to look at it from a labor perspective, put very simply is that, you know, the tour couldn't compete long term financially and live couldn't compete with a product that nobody seemed to want to watch. And so that was a climate right. ripe compromise, or at least to set aside the differences. And for all the talk of finances, costs, legal costs, the cost of purses, all the dipping into the well, I have to wonder and talking to antitrust attorneys is sort of maybe confirmed or lent credence to this thinking that a lot of the concern too was what was going to turn up in discovery if these guys were saying these dubious things in public you know can you imagine what they were saying in texts and emails and i, I remember saying to an antitrust guy you know oh come on these guys aren't there can't be anything he said you wouldn't believe the stupid things really smart people put in texts and emails and i think about my own email exchanges with people yeah. joking otherwise i wouldn't want those dipped into and i and I'm a nobody. Can you imagine, you know, somebody involved in the official world golf ranking making a snarky comment about, like, oh, yeah, I have yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Bryson thinks he's getting points, huh? That's funny. You know, can you imagine there might be who knows what's out there? And, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And you can only imagine that both sides, the Saudis and a lot of golf executives and the five families didn't want the their communications vetted too carefully, I would think. Right. And, and, uh, well, and I'm sure Yasser, I mean, you know, I, if, if I think I saw this, that he put on the table, let's end the litigation without anything else. He would agree to that. And, you know, that was sometime after his, um, 
you know, legal arguments for, uh, you know, not being able, not having to be submit to the jurisdiction of discovery, you know, lost. So I'm sure, I'm sure they all didn't want to have all that, but I'm sure him in particular being deposed for eight hours is probably not something he wanted to have happen. (laughs) No. And then, you know, and then if he got the Augusta membership on the side too, that was probably going to placate him. Right. I have to ask you, because I mean, I read Jeff Shackelford's pieces all the time, and I think that's the first time I've seen the reference to five families. I love The Godfather. Um, mm. And you just referenced that. Is that kind of a common term that people use for the, uh, well, I guess it's yeah, Masters, right. PGA, USGA, Tour, and RNA? Is that kind of uh, common? I, you know, I don't know if it was, uh, I, I, whether I heard it from Shackelford or somebody else, it was around the time that, you know, the Live Tour civil war began and then talk of the official world golf ranking began and and when people started focusing on the official world golf ranking i remember emailing the official the owgr and asking them like how do you guys operate and the response i got was you know we don't disclose that and i thought wait a minute, that's weird and you know this is something that has been hap- that is just central to the game that we all take for granted right but when you look at it, it just doesn't even pat I'm not a, any great live defender and I, I don't have a strong opinion on whether their events deserve official world golf ranking points or not. But then you're thinking, wait, wait, this is a closed shop. That doesn't make sense. And so, right. and that's when I first heard people starting referring to it as the five families of golf. I, it's, I, I love that, Fred. It's, it's awesome. Um, so just to go to kind of a somewhat adjacent issue um, and more, even more current is Billy Walter's new book, um, and your um, old colleague, uh, Alan Shipnuck, who's over at the Fire Pit Collective, and of course, who wrote the Phil book, had the inflammatory quotes that led to Phil taking a break. And now, yeah. you know, got the excerpt um, on the gambling chapter from Billy's book. Um, the numbers are eye popping. And, you know, what you got to wonder at some level, I mean, I think a lot of people were sort of saying, gee, why is Phil jumping at all this money, jumping for all this stuff? Got to have these gambling debts. This kind of sort of adds some numbers to that. It's, you know, maybe it's a stretch to say this, but it'd be something if Phil's gambling is what led to the whole massive shift in professional golf, right? Right. Yeah, there's no small amount of speculation about that, right? Plenty of people have suggested that that was the real motivator. Who knows? I I, I can't begin to say. I mean, I I have some distant experience with Billy Walters and I have a lot of experience from my past because of a crowd I ran with with gamblers and I will say that you know for all the though the numbers are eye-popping based on the gambling addicts I've known in my life and what I've seen it happen who gambling has done to their lives the numbers didn't surprise me at all when you talk about a guy like Phil the amount of money that Phil had uh, I've seen people wager proportionally every bit that much plenty of times in my life you know people making one fraction of what phil making wagering every bit as much and 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 coming to even greater obvious ruin than phil did i mean phil's you know still living a pretty lush life as far as i can tell um but anyway you know so all of which to say is that i don't think those numbers are that surprising at all i buy them you know and and people i've talked to who know walter say you know willie's not billy's not a bullshitter when it comes to the numbers he may be a bullshitter in every other way that gamblers and insider traders are but he's going to tell you how much he lost and won and how much other people lost and won i don't know if that's true or not but i i I, it was an interesting point that a gambler made to me where he said, look, the more honest, the more Walters is a successful gambler. And one of the keys to being successful as a gambler, as a sports better, is being honest with yourself about what you're winning and losing. Because most people who gamble poorly lie to themselves and others about how much they're losing. And so, I, and, and Walters, by all accounts, 
won more than he lost, which suggests to me that he was probably honest about those numbers. For sure. And, you know, the other thing, not just the dollar numbers, but the quantities of bets. I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, um, I mean, if you want to sort of draw kind of a parallel on addiction stuff with Tiger, I mean, Tiger's got, you know, back in the day had all these relationships he was carrying on with women and he's still Tiger on the course. Phil is like, must be spending hours a day. I don't know how, you know, he's got a the number of bets was just staggering, putting aside the dollar numbers and sort of how these guys can perform at that level when golf is being, oh, well, you know, you need to be focused on golf. You need to be clear headed, clear minded and all the other stuff that must have been running around in his head on this stuff while he's, you know, winning at Kiowa and doing all this other stuff is kind of amazing, isn't it? Yeah, although again, and I speak more from my experience with gamblers and having had a little bit of a dalliance in gambling before I got into the golf world myself as well, is that if you're an undisciplined gambler, it really doesn't take much time or thought to place a bet. It's that compulsive. And Interesting, you know, yeah. I think that like to place, uh, what was the number, 43 bets on baseball was what Walters uh, said that Phil apparently made or you know, Walters alleges that Phil made one day. That's, you know, that's checking 43 texts, you know, in, in the day right. and the digital right. age. So, Yes, sure. Probably a distraction if your mount if your losses are mounting, but the actual act of placing a bet, especially if you're not a disciplined gambler and you're just going by your hunches, right, right, that that's fair. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. Um, so, and you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, you know, I guess the most serious thing, um, you know, I mean, well, I should say, you know, people's reactions is well, it's Phil's money. Phil can do what he wants. I mean, the one that sort of I think has caught most people's eyes is the Ryder Cup bet. Um, and, you know, if it in fact happened, I guess Phil's denied that. And, you know, you know, whether he went somewhere else when, you know, he didn't do it with Billy, we'll see, but that's kind of remarkable. You know, you think back to, you know, Keegan and him resting in the afternoon when they were just a juggernaut at Medina through the yeah. first few days. And then of course, you know, I don't know, it's just, you, you just, you start to wonder, right? For sure. I mean, that was definitely the 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 most uh, eye catching of the details in that excerpt that got released. The idea that you would bet on your own sport, you know, and, and Phil defenders would say, well, at least he was betting on his own team. He wasn't throwing the match. So I don't know whether it actually happened or not. But when it comes to gambling, nothing surprises me, honestly, just because people do reckless things. I've seen it over and over again. We all know it. It's a disease. It's called one for a reason. Right. Right. No, that's fair. Um so um, uh, let me shift over to the um, the USGA's model local rule on the ball, and um, which you know came out, um, I guess in April. Um, and you know you had the sense, and again, I'm not, I don't have any inside information, but just the sense that they, you know, the distance report had come out a couple of years ago. You got to imagine they're talking behind the scenes and you know, and using the five families, you know, reference, you're talking with the five families and you would, you know, I'm sure they were hopeful they would get support. The RNA came out, you know, very supportive. I think, you know, Ridley and the Masters came out supporting, but now after a couple of months, not only does Moynihan on the tour come out against it, and we could, you know, posit all sorts of cynical reasons for that, but, you know, uh, particularly with Jay's job being where the status where it is these days, but, right. you know, the PGA itself, um, you know, with all their member, uh, you know, uh, pros all across the country, club pros comes out against it. So um, just curious, kind of your thoughts on that and where you think it's going to go, because um, 
I, I mean, just to throw one other thing on the uh, on the table, I guess to me, I mean, the distance stuff. I, I kind of feel like uh, the powers that be have been a little asleep at the switch for a long time. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, and I would argue not just the ball, but the club head, I mean, the driver used to be the hardest club in the bag to hit. It's kind of become the easiest. And I, for one, when I look at this bomb and gouge strategy of the tour, I don't find it interesting at all. in the way it's sort of obsoleted courses. I mean, I personally, you know, I was out at the U S women's amateur at Bel Air this week and seeing that distance with those lays. I mean, you kind of, and Shackelford made this point, you know, you see the architecture working the way it's supposed to at these iconic courses. And you were at the U S open for Pebble beach. I think you could say the same thing there with the distance, but you know, what's happened at the men's elite game is sort of um, obsoleted. Some of these courses here, Riviera, which is around the quarter for me, I mean, you could you got to turn around and walk 100 yards on some of these holes to go back to the back. tees. I mean, it's sort of um, to me made the game less interesting at the elite level anyways. So I think, you know, doing something, whether it's the ball, the clubs, both is so needed. And now we have this splintering. Um, So just sort of curious kind of what you I threw a lot on the table there, but just sort of curious what you think about all that. Yeah, I mean, well, I would say the fact that I can get the ball airborne is a sign that equipment has gotten way out of the hand. But no, I would I would love to see the ball rolled back for the elite players. I think a lot of fans would. I mean, for all the talk of everybody loves the long ball, I think more of us really like to see these players shape shots and play great courses. We've seen how much more compelling golf is when it's played on a really interesting design. Um, and, you know, it's exactly. not... To me, the USGA has... You know, double down its investment in some of these great old courses, you know, making right. Pebble Beach and Anchor Site for a number of U.S. Opens, among other courses. These are courses that are having a harder and harder time standing up to the technology, at least at the men's elite level. Even Augusta has to stretch itself to the limits of its property to right. these guys in. And so you could understand why the, why the older traditional institutions would be in favor of this. On the other hand, you have players who like hitting it far, players who want to make a lot of money uh, playing TPC courses where they can smack it everywhere and then hit a wedge out of the rough onto the onto the onto the green. And you then you throw in the financial interests of manufacturers and you're up against a lot of uh, opposition. So I don't know how it's going to play out. I, I played in, a, in a, an event with a with a golf executive who said that, you know, he thinks that it has to be done across the board because like if you start if you start saying, oh, we're going to cut it off at the U.S. amateur. Well, what about the U.S. junior? Do you cut it out? You know, do you do you, do you impose a ball there? Um, at what point do you stop? At what point do you do, do you require or stop requiring people to use or give people power to use the rolled back ball? There are all sorts of questions. So his feeling is, you know, it's important to for fairness, but also because people like to feel that there's that, that other factor that golfers like to feel that they're playing the same equipment as the pros, and so. Do you want to create a bifurcated game? I don't know where it's all headed. I suspect it's headed towards a rolled back ball at, a, at the U.S. Open and the major championships run by the uh, governing bodies and that the rest of it will just be rear back and blasted at the elite level and that the rest of us will keep playing uh, whatever ball we want. Yeah, you know, yeah, well, that seems to be where it's where it's most likely headed. Um It's just it's too bad. I mean, as you said, I just think it's so much more of an interesting game and 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 to me, it's not just the distance. You probably saw when Rory hit, uh, I think it was over at the Scottish Open when he, you know, was fooling around and hit that persimmon driver. Um, mm-hmm. And um, it's it's not only, and I've, I've heard this from other touring pros, it's not only that it goes shorter, 
but with the with the, the old clubs, you pay so much more of a penalty when you sure. hit it offline. But of course, you know, obviously they're not for you know, you didn't have persimmons that were whatever, 460 cc's in size. I mean, so but but between the size and material, I mean, and so to me, the way I think about it is you're gonna have to swing you swing slower because you 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 just can't afford the misses on a persimmon type or a smaller type club that you can with a massive metal driver. And to me, that brings the skill back into it. I sort of feel like the equipment is, again, at the elite level, pro, it's kind of flattened it. Uh, so it, it's not only less interesting to see everyone hit wedges in, but it's kind of less interesting to see the skill get flattened out to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. And I, you're not alone. I'm feeling that way. I, I wrote a story last year, just sort of the speculative story about how good would Ben Hogan be today? You know, would he? <laughs> you know, my feeling is Ben Hogan would be like a middling player today because and, and that I loved writing that because it riled up all the Hoganists out there. But in talking to people like Brandel Chambly and others who are close observers, they talked about like how what Hogan had to do, the precision that was required, the skill involved. Um, and when you were talking about, you know, the challenges of hitting a persimmon, it made me think about just how, in addition to the other forces that I talked about opposing a rolled back ball, that you also have an entire pedagogy of teaching right now for right. kids or the people who are starting out in golf are taught to hit as absolutely as hard as they can. You know, swing speed, ball speed, those are the coins of the realm. And uh, so there would have to be an entire kind of reconsideration of a lot of the approaches to golf, not just the architecture. Um, oh, for sure. So, um, and I don't know, I think, you know, pushing back against that culture and that economy is going to be really hard. I totally agree. I mean, you know, in my perfect world, I would change the equipment, but looking at the absolute craziness that's going about just changing the ball, I can't even imagine what it would be if you actually went beyond that and tried to change the equipment and be like blood in the streets in the golf industry. So, Oh yeah. No, I, I think we're, I, I don't think we're going to see any dramatic changes anytime soon. That would be my guess. Yeah. I think that's probably right. Um, let me get you out of here on this, just sort of um, generally putting aside the professional game kind of what do you sort of see as the biggest challenges facing golf today and then in the near future? I mean, we came out of the pandemic um, you kind of alluded to this a little earlier. I mean, it's, you know, golf got a huge boost because it was the ideal socially distanced sport during the pandemic. So many people, you know, either dusted off their clubs or started doing it. Um, I don't know if, you know, the game's going to retain those folks, but just generally speaking, I'd be interested kind of what you kind of see as the biggest challenges today and into the near term. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned the pandemic. When you think about that, a virus did more to grow the game than the tiger boom. That any, <laughs> yeah. any, any initiative, any institution or organization has launched over the entire history of the sport, it was it was a pandemic that did it. Um, I think you know, I don't, I don't want to oversimplify it by say staying within its lane, but we saw what happened when golf overbuilt and when it got right. excited about booms, and I think. When I've talked to people like course operators and others in the industry about where they think the game is headed, they're excited and happy with where things are, but also wary that things could easily contract, the, the, the economy could change, and that if golf gets overly ambitious and tries to become something that it isn't, then maybe trouble starts to happen. I think you know we're seeing a much more uh, measured approach to course construction, a lot more renovations. I mean, what I see happening in golf uh, there, there's also the whole environmental factor of like, you right. know, 
for sure. challenges, the water constraints and everything like that, that affect certain regions differently than others. But what I see happening in golf anyways, from the course construction and player involvement, not talking about the pro game is uh, kind of uh, a polarizing effect, sort of what we see with the rest of our country where the middle is getting ho- getting hollowed out. I think there's a lot of robust growth and increased participation at the sort of par three municipal top golf, alt golf level. And then you see a lot of courses these very expensive one-offs, beautiful courses, but private courses or very expensive resort courses. And um, you're down in, in Southern California. Yeah, I'm in LA, right, yeah. You're in LA and advanced the US Open, I wrote a story about the municipal scene there, how crowded it is, how hard oh, it is. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. Like Ranch, you mentioned, you know, talking about what's close by the LACC, Rancho's right south of that. And um, yeah. I saw uh, Shipnuck had tweeted something about, he was, cause I know he was down here at Bel Air for the US Women's Amateur. and. He, yeah. was, he went over to Rancho. It was like Saturday night at Rancho, and it was like every you know how they have the bays up top. The drivers, yeah. everything was filled. So I mean, right, those right. kind of facilities are just groaning under the stress of the number of people. Right, and I think LA, you know, it's an extreme example of some of the challenges that the industry faces across the board. That if you can't afford a private membership, um, you're left to scrap for tea times at the Muni's. Um, and so, what? Where's the middle? Um, here in you know here in the Bay Area, I live in one of the more expensive areas of the country, and people talk about the cost of golf. To me, it's not so much the cost of golf; it's the time I can't afford. I can't afford the the seven hour round. So, how do you keep people playing? How do you make it viable for people who don't have a private club membership to keep playing? Those are challenges that the game's going to have. Um, and I again, I think like not not overbuilding, not not expecting golf to become something other than the niche sport it has traditionally been. Right. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And 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 uh, and I will just say, because you mentioned Top Golf, I mean, I had my first experience at Top Golf last fall, and it's it's unbelievable how popular that is. And, you know, it's going to be interesting whether that leads to more regular golfers or just people who just want to, you know, periodically go have a beer and go hit a few shots at a Top Golf. Yeah, um, and Top Golf folks have started to track those numbers, and they say that there's quite a little bit of overlap. I haven't done a deep exploration of that, but you know, you see there's Top Golf imitators that are cropping up too, lots of them, and um, there's the increasing kind of gamification of golf, um, right? Where it's right. in a Top Golf range or in a course that aims towards this sort of more of a party atmosphere where golf is um, sort of a social experience that's part of a bigger picture. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, exactly. Yeah. I'm I'm having to get used myself to people playing music while we're playing golf. But yeah, <laughs> the carts all have Bluetooth speakers and everything. It's a different uh, vibe. I don't think of my, I don't think of myself as a fuddy dud in any way. But music on the course to me has always just struck me as the most ridiculous thing. Like, isn't golf enough? You need to be listening to music too. Right, right. The worst thing is that it's usually Hootie and the Blowfish are really bad music. Like, <laughs> you can play music. At least play something good. At least play something good. Absolutely. Hey, Josh, this has been great. I really um, enjoyed talking with you. Uh, Fun um, covering a whole lot of topics. I really appreciate you. Thanks so much for making the time. Absolutely. It was fun, Larry. I appreciate your good interviewer. Thank you. Talk to you soon.